Good morning to you all. It's great to be in worship with you. See a lot of new faces, and we're especially glad to have you at In Town with us this morning. I'd love to meet you after the service. Please do stick around if you can and uh, continue celebrating uh, Easter Sunday. We'll have champagne to my right in the room, uh, to my right. So please join us if you can. We've been going through a series entitled The Prophets of Repentance, and we're ending appropriately enough with Jesus as the final prophet of repentance and his words on the cross. So let's read this passage for us, and then we'll pray together. This is Mark chapter 15, our gospel reading. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemeth sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are coming here this morning from many different places, many different directions, but we all have vested interests not to believe this story. Because if this story is true, it means we are truly not our own, that we are not the center of the universe. 
But we also have vested interest to believe. We have reasons that we need to believe it because we need hope. We are fearful of death and we avoid it at all costs. And the resurrection means that death doesn't have the last say, that it's not an absolute, that it doesn't have ultimate victory. Father, whether we are leaning towards those reasons to disbelieve or to believe this morning, I pray that you would center us on the truth of Jesus, that you would help us to walk more closely towards believing in the resurrection, whether we are skeptics, whether we are coming into church for the first time, or whether we have believed this for many years, I pray that you would renew its relevance, that you would help us to have a sense of the gospel story that culminates in Jesus' resurrection. Father, I pray, would you lead us now as we consider your son's resurrection from the grave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend whose wife is a preschool teacher, and she normally teaches the under three crowd. And she teaches at a Christian school, but many of the students who come to this school are not Christians. And so as she goes through some of the religious instruction, some of the Bible verses and Bible stories that she tells them are the first time that these children have ever heard these stories before. But even at three years old or younger, they're deeply affected by Jesus and the story of the cross. And one little girl went home to her mom during the Easter season And she said, "Uh, Mom, you know that darling little baby Jesus that I told you about at Christmas? Well, it turns out that he didn't have a very good life. She gets it. Holy Week and Christmas conjure up a very different set of emotions and a very different reason of disbelief and skepticism. You see, it's one thing to get excited about new birth and another entirely to wrestle with the horror of the cross and the claims of the resurrection. John Irving is one of our great American writers, and he wrote a prayer for Owen Meany back in the 1980s. And the central character has this to say, I find that Holy Week is draining. No matter how many times I have lived through his crucifixion, my anxiety about his resurrection is undiminished. I am terrified that this year it won't happen, that that year it didn't. Anyone can be sentimental about the nativity. Any fool can feel like a Christian at Christmas, but Easter is the main event. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're simply not a believer. John Irving to my knowledge, is not a believer, but he gets the centrality of the cross and the centrality of the resurrection for the Christian faith. And Holy Week calls for a belief in an utter absurdity in the cross and something absolutely preposterous in the resurrection. But hope is often preposterous. Hope is often very absurd. And the resurrection is meant to give that. It is meant to give hope that death is neither final nor absolute. And we're going back, if you were with us on Friday night, and reexamining just a few steps, just a few elements of Good Friday in order to come properly to Easter. You have to go through Good Friday to get to Easter. 
You have to go through the cross to get to the empty tomb. You have to go through desolation in order to get deliverance. We're going to look at this passage just under those two headings, desolation and deliverance. The desolation of Jesus and his deliverance and your desolation and deliverance. So first of all, desolation. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's desolation. He's quoting here the first line of Psalm 22, which is attributed to David. And David, as you probably know, was king of Israel, but he was also very acquainted with grief. He was often on the run. In fact, run out of his kingdom by his own son, Absalom. And perhaps Psalm 22 was written during that time of exile. And he's asking what many of us have asked. Can God be trusted if he doesn't show up when we want him to? Can God's promises be clung to if he doesn't show up like we want him to when we're on the run, when we feel in danger and oppressed? David, David's suffering is, of course, terrible, but it's only a shadow of Jesus's. He's deserted and betrayed by his closest followers. He's put on trial by the imperial power of Rome. He's condemned by Rome, taunted by passers-by, and even fellow victims on the cross to his right and to his left. And he's rejected by the religious leaders of his people. But his cry is not a cry of confusion. He's not wondering where God is. It's a cry of anguish. He knows exactly what's going on. And he's reaching back into Scripture for something to hold on to, some reminder of the future some reason for hope. And he's connecting his own story to the real abandonment that Israel felt, that David felt. And he's connecting his story to everything that's come before, to all of the lead up of the Old Testament. He is saying, in this moment, as I am forsaken by God, I am fulfilling what the scriptures promised and what they pointed to. It's not a cry of confusion, it's a cry of anguish, because as God the Father turns his face away from Jesus as he bears the sin of the world, he is fulfilling the hope of Israel. He's fulfilling the hope of redemption. He is paying for the sin of the world. Now, we have a number of problems with this approach and with the cross in general. For Christians, this is a, a sad moment in the history of of redemption, but it's something to be celebrated and something to be honored and something to be remembered. But for skeptics, it's always been hard to swallow. Voltaire, one of the greatest skeptics of all, writes in the 1700s, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever been inflicted on the world. And if you've been following the New York Times bestseller list, book after book written by the so-called New Atheist, are picking up on this line of skepticism towards Christianity. It's that Christianity is bloody. It's that Christianity involves God sending his son to the cross. How can that be just? How can that be right? How can an innocent man die in my place? I do not accept that. They go so far as to call it 
divine child abuse. That's Jesus' cry from the cross. And they say, I can't worship a God who is wrathful, who meets out justice. But it seems that we're putting God here in an impossible bind. We reject him because he punishes evil and in the very same book critique him for the problem of evil. God, how do you let this world stand as it is? And yet we don't want him to punish evil. We don't want him to bring justice to that which is unjust. But Jesus transcends all these categories because he says that there's no division between the Father and I. He is not inflicting judgment on something that I did not want. I am coming. It is part of our divine plan that Jesus goes to the cross. He willingly goes to the cross to absorb the stain, the power, the curse of sin. Now, you and I may have indignation towards evil, towards that which is wrong in the world, but Jesus hates it. He hates what is broken and wrong and sad about the world. And that's why he goes to such an extent to pay for it, to redeem it. And instead of taking blood, instead of seeking retribution, he inflicts the wounds of evil on himself. In a culture where the gods demanded blood as a sign of devotion, he says, I don't demand your blood, I give you mine. I give you mine to make you clean. We don't really want a God who isn't wrathful towards evil. That God would not be worth worshiping. But the Christian God deals with evil in a very unique way. Mirsav Volf, who you've heard me quote here if you come to in-town very much, is a Croatian, and he's seen the violence of the Balkans very up close. And he doesn't see the doctrine of God's divine judgment in the way that we likely do. He has this to say, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many especially in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you see what Wolf is saying? He's turning our objections on their heads, He's saying only with a God that seeks to mete out justice, only with a God who seeks to put an end to all evil can we come down from our thrones of judgment. Only when we know that God is the final judge and jury can we stop taking up that role for ourselves. Far from inspiring further acts of evil, God's violence towards evil is the one thing that can fully extinguish it. Only in believing in a, that God will finally and fully eradicate injustice and exonerate those who have suffered under it can we forego the very same thing. God has a white-hot fury towards everything that is evil and sad and broken 
And friends, we don't want it any other way. But he's the only God who doesn't ask you and I to pay back for our wrongs, for the things we've done, but instead absorbs our evil on himself and in himself, no matter the cost. At noon, there was darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark's picture of the crucifixion is utter desolation. Jesus is abandoned by all but a few of his friends. He's mocked by strangers. He's unfairly tried. He's executed by one of the most grotesque forms of capital punishment that's ever been invented. Jesus then experiences the most devastating blow of all, and that is a momentary separation from the Father that he has enjoyed eternal, loving fellowship with. The worst blow that can come to anyone is that sense of being abandoned by God. His own father abandons him, and evil does its worst to him. He experiences total and utter desolation. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on. You go from Good Friday to Easter. You go from the cross to the empty tomb. You go from desolation to deliverance. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Desolation to deliverance. Jesus quoted the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm doesn't end there. And when people heard this, they wouldn't have thought, oh my, that's verse 1 of Psalm 22 because they didn't have verse numbers in their Bible. They would have thought that's the opening line of Psalm 22. So what's the rest of the psalm say? It begins with desolation, but it doesn't end there. My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and we're not disappointed. God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. What Jesus is saying as he quotes that first part of Psalm 22 is just wait. 
A new day is coming. The rest of this psalm is still true. It's not just the lament of the first two verses, but it is the hope, is the deliverance of the rest of that psalm. And he says, this has been the plan all along. It's not me and the Father divided. It's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in this plan to bring redemption finally and fully to the world. It's remembrance of the future. Jesus is speaking prophetically. I'm forsaken now, but my death is not the end of the story. I will be vindicated. I will be raised from the dead. Just you wait. Desolation is the beginning of the story, but it's not the end. And it doesn't have to be your end either. Jesus Christ, my God, my God. And it reminds us that God is not an abstraction. He is a personal being. He is the God who took on flesh to redeem humanity and who goes to the cross for you. He's personal. You can have a relationship with him. He's not a theoretical abstraction. Jesus personally, really, historically, in the flesh, goes to the cross for you. Just as Psalm 22 doesn't end with verse 1, your story can also continue through the psalm. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your heart live forever. Your story can be a part of that story. Jesus' rescue mission was to seek you and to save you. And maybe your story starts in forsakenness, in desolation, or maybe it's there now. But the promise, the hope that Jesus picks up on on the cross is relevant to you. The hope that is present in Psalm 22 can be your hope as well. That in the midst of desolation, in the midst of grief and sickness and utter despair, that you can have a reason to hope. All of us know where we were when certain events happened, such as the JFK assassination. Um, That's not relevant to me, but there's some of you in this room that were alive then. Also, the Challenger explosion. I remember sitting in my sixth grade class when the, the news went out on the loudspeaker. And of course, September 11th, 2001. And one image of that day that many people still remember is the people jumping to their deaths out of the buildings before they collapsed, jumping to escape the flames. In the midst of that horrible, horrible day, there were pairs of people who held each other's hands and jumped together. In that terrible moment, someone reached out to another and took hold of their hand, saying, you are not alone in this. I will face death with you. I will be with you to the very end. I will die with you. What an image. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and I from the cross. Jesus declares to the world, you do not have to face death alone. I will share your humanity. I will share your mortality. I will share your death with you. I will face death with you and for you. Jesus takes us by the hand and says, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in your desolation, in your despair, in your sense of abandonment. I will take your hand and I will go there with you to a degree that you can't possibly imagine. 
you may feel forsaken. You may feel abandoned, but Jesus promises, never will I leave you. Look at what I have done on the cross. Is that not a guarantee? Is that not a promise that I will do whatever it takes to ultimately save you? I will never forsake you. I will die with you. I will die for you, Jesus says. In August 2002, shortly after the events of 9-11, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band released the record that's critically acclaimed called The Rising. It was the first significant piece of popular art to deal with the tragedy of 9-11. And Time Magazine writes, many of the songs are written from the perspective of working people whose lives and fates intersected with those hijacked planes. The songs are sad, but the sadness is almost always matched with optimism, promises of redemption, and calls to spiritual arms. There is more rising on the rising than a month of Sundays in a church. September 11th was a collective Good Friday for all of us. It was a day of darkness and pain and horror. But how interesting that the very first piece of of, uh, major work of pop culture to deal with that doesn't focus on the Good Friday aspects, but on the Easter aspects. Bruce, the boss, looked at that dark day, the day of death, with Easter eyes. We can't bear to look at Good Friday very long if there's not an Easter. We can't look at the desolation, the grotesque nature of the cross without the deliverance of the resurrection. It's too painful. Neither of these are abstractions, but they're historical events meant to have bearing upon each of our lives in a real way. So how do we live as Easter people in a Good Friday world? A couple of things. One, believe it. The men were nowhere to be found, but the two women went to the tomb. What did they expect to do? They themselves, as they're walking, realize, wait a minute, we've got a problem here. We're two women. And there's a huge stone in front of the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They had no idea how, without the help of men, that they could ever move away the stone. But an act of radical friendship and radical faith, they went to the tomb anyway. This isn't an act just of friends. This isn't an act just of students of the rabbi. This is an act of believers of followers of Jesus, of those who have entrusted their lives, no matter what the circumstances, to him. And they go to the tomb not knowing how they're going to get into the tomb to anoint the body with the spices. That's what the women in that day, that was their job. They want to do the job. They want to anoint the body. They have hope. In the midst of a Good Friday world, they live with an Easter hope, and it changed them. It changed the way that they went about life. Even when the rest of the disciples said, we don't know what's going on, we're going to cower and hide and disappear. These two women had faith. These two women had hope, and they went to the tomb. It wasn't irrational. They expected God to show up. First of all, believe it. And then secondly, build on it. 
Every week we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' disciples may have prayed this after his crucifixion, but they, before his resurrection, couldn't have understood the power and the relevance and the true meaning of this prayer. This scared, cowering bunch went on to live out lives of ministry, lives of proclaiming that Jesus is risen, many of them to their own deaths because of this confession. They went from the desolation of Good Friday and cowering, fearfully huddled together to deliverance, to saying he is risen. And because of that, I can live. Because Jesus lives, so shall I. So what steps, finally, do you need to take to move out of desolation? And what steps do you need to take to enjoy, to experience deliverance? What do you need to do to move out of desolation? You personally, right now, what do you need to do in response to Jesus' resurrections to move resurrection, to move out of your personal desolation? Maybe it's stopped working so much, or others start working a little more. Maybe to get help to stop that habit that's harming your body. Maybe you need to distance yourself from an unhealthy relationship that's wreaking havoc, havoc upon you spiritually and emotionally. Maybe you need to find a counselor to start healing that pain that you can't explain and can't put your finger on. Maybe you need to pursue reconciliation with that person that you're at odds with. And what about enjoying and experiencing deliverance? Well, it may be pretty simple. Maybe you just need to read the book that you've been wanting to read that's been on your shelf. Maybe it's the Bible, maybe not. Maybe you need to go to the theater, go to the park, watch more sunrises, sit still for a few moments, meditate. Maybe it's volunteer with the ministry that you really believe in but haven't taken the time to really devote energy to. Maybe it's start coming here. Maybe it's to not come just on the high holidays, but to come and be a part of a church that is enamored with the gospel. Whatever it is, do it on earth as it is in heaven. As we sang, Jesus lives. And so you may too. You may finally live life to the full and live life as it has been intended as worshipers of a redeeming, loving God who sends his son to the cross in your place. That's true humanity. In the midst of desolation, you can lean into that deliverance personally in your own story as well as into the story of the world and participate in all of the ways that God, through his people, is bringing heaven to earth, is doing on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, friends, is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's live into that as we continue to worship and as we depart from this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming in our place and dying in our place. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way that you make that vitally real to us in our personal lives 
in this church and in the story of the world. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we consider your resurrection. As we walk out of these doors into what we think is real life, I pray that you would remind us that this is real life, that your resurrection is relevant to real life. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you for the crucifixion, for the resurrection, and the hope of the coming new world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.